Hi, sexy people. I'm Dr. Tammy. Welcome to The Trouble with Sex. I'm thrilled to have you here today. We have an amazing guest with a really provocative new book, Peggy Ornstein. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Don't Call Me Princess, Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which is a fabulous title, Waiting for Daisy, Flux, and Schoolgirls. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Afar. She's been published in New York, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and she has a TED Talk that's received over 4 million views. Her new book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity is something that we have desperately needed to talk about. Help us spread the love. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and take a minute to give us five stars or write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do we love to hear your feedback, your support really makes a difference. It's going to help other people who are looking for advice about their relationships and sexual wellness. We have lots of amazing guests coming up, so subscribe so you don't miss a thing. We love and appreciate all of you, and thank you so much for your continued support. I'm so excited to have you here, Peggy. Thank you so much for being here on The Trouble with Sex. Thank you. And update on the TED Talk, it's now over 5 million views. Oh. That thing has gone crazy. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Bizarre. It's wild. Yeah. Well, well, it says something about how important this conversation really is. Yeah, it really does. Do you want to tell people what the TED Talk is about? It's about girls and sexual pleasure and about the whole idea of how we, you know, then I was writing mostly about girls, but it was about how our emphasis on risk and danger is not serving our girls, either in terms of their developing a sense of sexual health and sexual well-being or in terms of their safety in the end. Yeah, I mean, that's really, it, it really was groundbreaking how you were talking about girls and sex and we really hadn't had that conversation before. I know, but you know what's really weird to me, Tammy, is that I didn't feel like when I was working, at, you know, reporting and writing that book, I mean, it certainly felt like to, important to me. And I was, you know, I, I had questions and I kind of went out to see what the lay of the land was and everything. But I just didn't imagine that, that it would land like that, that it would, it would be that central and core to so many people. That was really a shock to me. I mean, I just did it because I was interested. That's why I write books. Writing that book was, and I know you started out talking about boys and sex, and we'll do that, but I just have to say that that was a, a, a life-changing experience for me mm. to have work that affected people that deeply and broadly was really astonishing. Why do you think it hit as intensely as it did? You know, was it the timing? Was it the was it that girls were growing up at this point in our culture and we were talking about consent and yeah, girls were I getting think, a voice. I mean, what was it? I've pondered that a lot. And of course, I can't really say, you know, why something hits the zeitgeist when it does. But but I think, you know, when it came out, uh, I started reporting it sort of before the latest sort of round of conversation around consent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it dovetailed with that when it came out. Yeah, good timing. Um, there was a lot of conversation going on about consent. And, mm-hmm. you know, my point about it, about consent was sort of like absolutely essential but kind of a low bar for your sexual experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was not assaulted, very low bar. Um, (laughs) And can we do better than that? And what what happens after yes? And I think, you know, when I talk to, even now, you know, I keep thinking, oh, now 
it's fine. You know, now girls all know this stuff, but I, I, I get letters from teenage girls all the time mm-hmm. who have read the book and feel like scales fell from their eyes, sort of. Because the way that I think they're socialized in this intensively sexual but sexist and misogynistly sexual, you know, media culture mm-hmm. to, you know, constantly be presenting as sexy but completely disconnect from your own body and sexuality. I think that that disconnection is so profound for them that they don't even know it's happening. And so to have somebody say, hey, what if we looked at it from this perspective? You know, it just it just makes them just go click, you know, that feminist click that we used to talk about years ago. So I think that's kind of it. Well, I think you gave girls, young women, and even adult women permission to talk about pleasure. Like pleasure could should be your priority. And that yeah. it's really about you and your pleasure and what you deserve and what you want. And that's really the root of consent. It's the root of all of it. Yeah. And knowing yourself. I mean, one of the things that was really shocking to me in doing that work was how few teenage girls masturbated. Mm-hmm. Like that I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And they would say things to me like, well, I have a boyfriend to do that. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I would say, well, first of all, that's the same guy who's like poking his fingers inside you like he's rummaging around for his car keys, right? That's great. Exactly. But also, the boys aren't saying that. Right. The boys weren't saying, well, I've got a girlfriend to do that. And no, so no. what the boys were saying was, I can do that myself. I want a blowjob. Right. Exactly. And so there was like this complete disconnect there, too, that, you know, that I would, I, my, one of the things that I say in that TED Talk that became sort of a signature of mine was that over the non-reciprocal, I mean, the thing that sort of, one of the things that got me going was that sort of whole non-reciprocal blowjob thing. That was, you know, I just, I have a daughter. And at that time she was much younger, but I just thought, no, this is not how I'm going to raise her. And this is not what I want her to be going into. I must change this immediately. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to girls was, you know, what if every time you were with, alone with a guy, he asked you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen and he never got you a glass of water. Which happens. Right, right. Or if he did, it was super, you know, it was like, oh, you know, and you would never stand for, because these were very empowered girls that I was talking to. They were all in college or college bound. They had very, you know, high ambitions professionally and educationally. And they would laugh and they'd say, well, when you put it that way, and I would say, well, why would you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a non-reciprocal sex act than get somebody a glass of water from the kitchen? And, you know, unpacking even that, that dynamic, I think really for young women helped those who have seen the talk or read the book start to think about it differently. Yeah, totally. And when we talk about the trouble with sex today, you know, it fits in so perfectly with this idea of our gender roles and what the expectations are and sex as service and, you know, what people are taught. And you really have changed that conversation. You've been, you know, instrumental in changing that. Well, I, I sort of, you know, with the girls, I wanted to put it in a perspective of, in a way, in a social justice framework, which which a lot of young people really relate to right now. And I used Sarah McClellan, who's a psychologist at University of Michigan, um, talks about intimate justice and, you know, how sex has political implications as well as personal ones, just like who vacuums the floor or, or rug or who does the dishes in your home. Um, and it brings up similar issues, you know, as you know, of, of inequity, of personal safety, of you know, human rights, of well-being, physically and psychologically. And so to ask these questions of, you know, who is entitled to sexual experience? Who benefits by it? How does each partner define good enough? You know, those are really tricky questions for us as adult women. But when I was talking about girls, you know, teenage girls and young adults, 
I just didn't want their experience to be something they had to get over. Totally. And what does it mean to be empowered as a sexual person? Yeah. And, you know, one thing, I learned a lot from talking to kids who were not heterosexual mm-hmm. or not always heterosexual or, you know, bisexual, gay, whatever, queer. And one of the things with gay young men was they seemed really much better able to negotiate. They had a vocabulary and they were better able to negotiate a sexual experience and put together something that worked for them, which was not to say that there weren't issues with bad communication or assault or any of that. That definitely was there. But I talked at one point to Dan Savage, who is a sex advice columnist. And he and I was running that idea by him that the gay young men that I was meeting seemed better equipped. And he said, yeah, the question that gay men ask each other at the moment of consent is, what are you into? Mm-hmm. And it's this open-ended question, right? It lets anything in, anything rules anything in, rules anything out. You know, it might be what you expect. It might not be what you expect, but it's a conversation. It's, a, it's, it's building an experience that works for you. And when we talk about consent in a heterosexual context, we tend to talk about a series of questions that a heterosexual boy is asking a heterosexual girl to which she can say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of like, how can we create a context in which young people can answer the four magic words, however that might be for them, whether that means, you know, what I'm into is holding hands or what I'm into is, you know, kissing or what I'm into is absolutely nothing or, you know, whatever it is. But I also thought, and this goes back to something that you said a minute ago, that if a heterosexual boy asked a heterosexual girl, what are you into? She might well say, I have no earthly idea. Or whatever right? you're into. Exactly. <laughs> whatever because you want to do. We're socialized as because of that symbiotic socialization of men and women. And so when we're talking about sex, to me, it's it's really talking about everything. And it's really talking about how, you know, it's a lens through which to look at it, but the ways that we have to shift those gender dynamics and gender socializations to allow all of us to be full people in all of these realms, including the sexual realm. Yeah, there's so many assumptions, right? Aren't there built yeah. into the conversation of what are you into? If you're hetero, if you're if you're fluid, if you're, you know, yeah. there's so many assumptions just depending on the body that you're into or even where you grow up, like different parts of the country. There's a lot of assumptions about what you should be into, how you right. grow up, your religious backgrounds, like the cultural influences, you know, the whole intersectionality. Like, what are you into? There's so many assumptions when I ask you that question versus if you're, you know, my son and you and he asks his girlfriend, what are you into? So many assumptions about what that actually means, even that question. Yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about your book, which I'm fascinated by as the mother of a son and of daughters too, what do you think is the biggest trouble with sex today? And I know that's like a huge question, especially for you as like this brilliant scholar around this issue? (laughs) No, it's actually a really easy question. Okay. Um, It's a really easy, silence. I think that that's it. I think it's silence. And and in reporting on young people in particular, the silence of parents, the silence of schools that allows our young people that we think, you know, in some weird way, either because we feel awkward because nobody talked about these things with us and we don't know how to do it, or because we think in some weird way that we're protecting them, that we have this like mis- placed idea of innocence, when in fact, our young people from a very early age are growing up inundated with sexual messages from the media, from everything around them. And if we are not in there correcting that and giving them at an, in an age-appropriate way from a very early age, 
positive messages and appropriate messages about their bodies, about how we treat other people, about, you know, not hugging people who don't want to be hugged when they're little, you know, all these different messages. If we don't do that, we're letting the media raise our children for us. Mm. And I don't think that you're going to be that happy with the result if you do that. (laughs) Well, it's a scary thought. (laughs) Well, but it's true, right? I mean, that is what is happening. I mean, if you spend, I was just watching a new show on Netflix. It's called something like Ginny and Georgia. And it's not, you know, it's not a bad show or anything, but the girl in the show is supposed to be 15, the actress. She's actually 24. So right there, you know, you've got some, they're, they're projecting, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, that's what a 15-year-old is. That's what, but it's not, it's wrong. But then she ends up having sex, it, I'm not, this is not much of a spoiler, it happens in the first or second episode, with her neighbor who she has a crush on. He climbs in through the window, they kiss and they have sex. And I'm like, you're 15 years old and you are going from, in, and she has, you know, never had intercourse, I should say, with uh, PVA, with anybody. And I'm thinking, you just went right from, one kiss to PVI. Penis and vagina what, intercourse for our listeners who don't know yeah. what that is. And that is, you know, it's, it's that notion and kids absorb this, that consent to one act is consent to all acts. And if you kiss somebody, well, then you kind of have to have sex with them or you are consenting to have sex or with them. Or you want to have sex with them. Yeah. Since and I want to kiss you, it must mean that I want your penis in my vagina because yeah. I really feel like kissing you. Yeah. And there's no, and we give them no language, no lens with which to look at that, no way to say even like, you know, hey, I'm really happy with what we're doing right now. Can we just hang with this? You know, I mean, there's just, we're just throwing them out there with that as the image of, and I I, I remember saying at one point to my daughter, we saw some scene like that on TV or in a movie. It wasn't, you know, again, it wasn't a bad movie. It wasn't a bad TV show. It was just like an or, really ordinary, really ordinary. And I stopped it. This is when she was in middle school, I think. And I said, you know, honey, how... When you see a cab ride in a movie, you see people getting into the cab and then you see them getting out of the cab, but you don't see the whole cab ride because that would take <laughs> up too much time and it would be boring. Similarly, when we depict, when sex is depicted by Hollywood, they tend to use a sort of language that they've developed that isn't what really happens. It's a shortcut. And also it's very male gaze and, uh, it is not realistic, expected, or what you should be thinking. We needed to unpack what that was. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't a movie that was, it wasn't like even R-rated. She wouldn't have been watching that. She was in middle school. It was just what they see all the time. Mm-hmm. And when we're not opening the doors to those conversations, we're letting them absorb that and go, oh, okay, oh, okay, oh, okay, thousands tens of thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Well, your point is well taken that we don't really teach our kids about the subtlety of relationships. So it's basically even the the idea of consent, which we think we're all pretty hip about now, if we even say the word consent to our kids, it's really just a yes or no conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not the subtlety of, well, yes, and, or yes, but, or yes to this, but not to that, or no to this, but maybe later. Like, there's a lot of subtlety in that in that yes or no conversation that we're not really talking tell you, about. W- one thing that really pains me in talking to, when I talk to groups of kids, particularly high school kids, is how the, one of the main questions that I get from teenage girls over and over and over and over, how do I say no to a boy without hurting his feelings? Wow. That's like the number one question. It's not even about them or about their 
desires or, or needs or wants. It's about like having no idea how to set a limit in a caring way and also expecting that somebody won't respond in a caring way if you set a limit with them. Well, and worried that, will they still like me? Yeah. Or will they stop going out with me? I mean, which I remember so well from being that age, you know? And I just think, really? We really haven't made any progress in helping them. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that the thing that works best for young women, both in terms of their being able to create the sexual health and well-being and encounters that they want to have, whatever that means to them, and remaining safe is a combination of sex-positive sex education and learning refusal skills, that, mm. that they need to know both of those things. And you can't, do, you can't just do the no's. You can't just do the don'ts. You can't just do the refusals. They also have to understand their own needs and desires and wants. Exactly. And what are the yeses? What do yeah. I want? And yeah. how can we go there? Well, after we come back from our break, we're going to talk about boys, how you can work with boys and what what you found out about boys, about love and porn and sex and consent and the new masculinity. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you've ever been interested in becoming a sex therapist or a sexuality counselor, find out more at integrativesextherapyinstitute.com or istitraining.com, I-S-T-I training.com. ISTI trains therapists to be the best sex and couples therapist that they can be. Classes are easy. They're online. You can download information anytime and apply today. That's istitraining.com, Integrative Sex Therapy Institute. Let's talk about your book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. What did you find about boys and sex? Like, and how is it different than your last book about girls and sex? You know, I guess in a way, when I when I put the two books side by side, I feel like girls and sex is very much about how girls are systematically disconnected from their bodies. And in a real way, boys and sex ended up to my surprise, being much more about how boys were disconnected from their hearts. Mm. And when I talk about the sort of masculinity issues that, you know, from the get-go, boys grow up in a narrowed and impoverished emotional environment. And there's, you know, there's these, there's all kinds of studies. Like there's one where adults watch videos of, of babies being surprised by a jack-in-the-box. And if the they're told in advance that the baby's a boy, they are more likely to say that the baby's response is angry rather than surprised or fearful. Yeah. And so many of the boys that I talk, and the same thing, you know, when mothers uh, of infants tend to talk with broader range of emotion to their daughters, with boys, they tend to focus on anger when it is, is the predominant emotion. And I would talk to boys, they would talk about that all the time, putting a wall between the world and their feelings and only being allowed happiness and anger. And, and what the, the kind of upshot was that boys end up so disconnected from not only emotion, but vulnerability. And, you know, we know that vulnerability is not only a fundamental human trait, but, you know, Brene Brown, the genius, says that it's the secret sauce to holding relationships together. So when we cut boys off from their vulnerability, we cut them off from their capacity to have the kinds of relationships that we want them to be able to have as adults. And that hurts them. And that radiates outward and hurts the romantic partners. So kind of starting from that, which kind of surprised me, that conversation with boys. And I, I got to say, I was reluctant to do this book. When I went around with Girls and Sex, everywhere I went, people said, you know, 
why aren't you writing about boys? Write about boys. And I'd sort of say, well, that's somebody else's job. You know, and part of it was that I didn't know what I would have to say because I'd worked with girls for 25 years. But part of it was I didn't think boys would say anything, you know? <laughs> like, not so much a reputation for chattiness with the boys, right? Like, I thought I'd have whole transcripts of, nope, yup, you know? But they were so forthcoming. Yeah, once you get them started, they have a lot to say. Yeah, yeah sure. They really do. And when they feel permission... And it really struck me how rarely they they do feel permission mm-hmm. and safety in order to express their interior lives. And they took the opportunity and they really, really did. Nice. So I feel like it started with that piece of like what, you know, that that conflict around masculinity and masculine identity and that sort of, you know, these boys who on one hand were just like the girls, there was this fundamental split where they were you know, they they saw saw girls as equal in the playing field and in the classroom, and they had female friends, and the straight boys had gay male friends, and all this kind of stuff. But when I would say, "What's the ideal guy?" it was like they were channeling 1955, mm-hmm. and it was all about you know athleticism, making money, sex is status seeking, and emotional suppression. And so it sort of started there. It's all about what they do, not who they are, right? We train them from such a young age to be these human doings instead of human beings and recognize for what they can accomplish. Yeah. And for this, just like this mask that they have to wear. Such a mask. Such a mask. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I talk to so many mothers who, even today, you know, they see their kid out on the soccer field and they shake their head and they realize, my kid just sucks at sports. (laughs) Right. He's out there you know, kicking daisies and, you know, looking up at the sky. and Ferdinand. Yeah. He's Ferdinand. He's being a sweet kid and, you know, sensitive. But they're going to make him keep playing soccer. Right. Because all the other boys are playing soccer. and Right. But, you know, the thing is, is that even boys that were into sports would, this surprised me, was that a lot of them would talk to me about why they quit. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually they quit, right? And a lot of times it wasn't about the sport. It was about the culture. Sure of masculinity around the sport that they found so, that that they just couldn't tolerate anymore. It's debilitating. Yeah, and, you know, that whole, like, I talk about how do boys, you know, that use of of, um, talking about dominating women sexually as a way to prove your own heterosexuality, right? Mm -hmm. And how they talk about it. They, They, you know, they never say, you know, we had a really great time and we really, you know, we connected. Each other. No, it's they bang, they hammer, they pound, they nail, they hit that, they tap that, they rip her up. You know, it's like they went to a construction site. It is. It has so little to do right, exactly. with, you know? Well, it's about tearing down. It's about having power yeah. over and exactly. controlling, which is a way to manage your fear and your emotion and to feel on top yep. of. And the boys, you know, they weren't necessarily, you know, like I said, some of them were quitting or they, you know, they, they weren't necessarily okay with that. And and I remember, you know, one boy who told me about how when he was a sophomore in high school, he and a friend had gone, had challenged a group of boy seniors in the locker room who were saying something, you know, despicable about one of the girls and they got made fun of. And so he said the next time it happened, he didn't say anything, but his friend continued to challenge them. And he said, I watched the more my friend challenged them, the more they seem not to like him, Mm. the more they seem not to listen to him. And he was spending all his social capital. And he said, and here I was sitting there with buckets of it, not spending it. And he said, I don't know what to do because I don't want to to choose between these guys and my dignity, Mm -hmm. but how do I make it so I don't have to choose? Mm -hmm. And just like right there, you know, Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist, says that it's silence in the face of misogyny and cruelty where boys learn to become men. And so I thought about that silence a lot among those boys. They didn't do it but they didn't feel like they challenge it either. 
Well, and you know, that translates so much into today's toxic masculinity. You see it in politics all the time. You see it, yeah. you know, in our dysfunctional government systems. And, you know, it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't get better. It kind of gets lodged there when they sort of get stuck at this exactly. emotional level and they never really mature. Yeah, and I have, I don't tend to use the phrase toxic masculinity because I feel like it's a really good diagnostic tool, mm-hmm. but it makes boys defensive. Mm-hmm. And and I am always trying to think of how can we talk to them in a way that helps them open up, helps them you know, connect, helps them be able to articulate and make change in their lives. Mm-hmm. So I tend to say things like fragile masculinity. Mm, that's nice. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's kind of a nicer, but there's there's other ways of saying that that I really don't like that make fragile it sound, masculinity. It's so lovely. Although, you know, there's a lot of people out there now who are in the public eye who I would not consider fragile, who, you know, on the surface are just jerks. <laughs> How do you describe yeah, they are them? Just jerks. How do you describe them? Yeah. Well, but their masculinity is so fragile that they have to be jerks in order to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So I have two questions from two listeners. The first one is from Lloyd in South Dakota, who says, Dear Dr. Tammy, When I was a youngster, I had sex with a young boy my age. We were both naive. We were exploring. It's sitting with me now and in between myself and my wife, although I've never shared it with her. How do I come to terms with my shame and overcome my own sexual limitations? It's a big question, though, for the boys. It's a big boys. question. If boys, I mean, if you are experimenting with another person and it is a consensual pleasurable, mutual situation, that is a normative thing to do. That is a really typical thing to do. That is not unique to Lloyd or I guess I'd say two things. One is, you know, thinking about one's own attitude and ideas about how we look at those who do routinely engage in sexual behavior with people of the same, have the same bodies of them. So I think part of that shame is about feeling negatively towards those people so that's one thing to examine around that. Like, how do, how do you embrace, accept, acknowledge those who are all along the spectrum of sexual orientation? And the other piece is as thinking, like, I guess what he's saying is, to, does this mean that my sexuality is something other than what I believe it to be? No. You know, no, it doesn't. You know, you, people experiment on, in the course of their lives in all kinds of different ways. And it can be a positive experiment. It can be a negative experiment. But it may be that you do that and, you know, that's what you do. Yeah. And I wonder if for Lloyd, it's also the keeping of the secret because he has so much shame about it. Men can have sex with men and not be gay. Or yeah. you can be sort of on the spectrum. Or you can be bisexual mm-hmm. or you can be on the spectrum. Very few people are ve- are really at one far end or the other. That's what they what Kinsey found is that it's not a lot of people are really like extreme in their heterosexuality or in their homosexuality. Right. They fall in the middle in the bell curve. Most people fall along somewhere along the along the spectrum. But I do think the other piece is thinking about how you relate to people who are on that spectrum and not and and how much of that shame is about unresolved feelings of intolerance around yeah, that. And not projecting that onto your boys if you yeah. have kids. Yes, thank you. And we have another question from Laura from Brooklyn. I'm a mom of three boys and totally outnumbered. How do my husband and I raise strong boys who are also in touch with their feelings and are compassionate people? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I don't know how old your boys are, but I think one, one thing is to start around the emotion piece. Because, as I said, we don't, boys tend to lose emotions. Most adult men have some level of inability 
to name emotions that they feel. So they'll feel an emotion in their body, but they can't say what that emotion is. Mm. And so anytime we can broaden boys' vocabulary around emotions, it's great, especially when they're little, to be able to say, that seems like you're really sad, or wow, that's frustrating, or just like actually naming, saying out loud so that you give them the vocabulary to put with those feelings that they feel in their bodies is really important with boys. You know, and as they get older, if your boys are more like teenagers, listening to a podcast like this where we're having this discussion or and saying, either doing it, you know, when they're in the house or in the car, ideally, because then they can't escape, <laughs> you know, and saying like, what, what do you think about that? What's that like in, in your life? What do you see among your friends or reading, you know, that chapter of the book or, or talking about this, this idea of, I don't know if you've heard this, Tammy, but the idea of the simp is, is a, you can ask your son about this. Mm. This is, it's sort of a new version of an age old idea, but it's the boy who is nice to girls. Oh yes. Yes. I have and therefore it's like a wimp. Oh, yeah, it's a bit like, a, but it's it's like a wimp specifically about being nice to girls, being nice to your girlfriend, getting your girlfriend flowers, being, I guess it's probably like a new version of like, you know, pussy whipped or something like that. But it is, it has been like wildfire spreading around among boys. And, and you know, it's that idea. I remember talking to a boy at one point who said, it just feels like you have to be an asshole. You're supposed to be an asshole. That's what girls want. And girls, you know, will play into that too, because- of the whole symbiotic socialization issue. Mm -hmm. But, you know, talking about that, what does it, you know, what does that mean? Why? Let's unpack that a little bit is really helpful. So I I think that it it is partly about trying to give them some perspective and distance and vocabulary that they can talk about it and why it's important to them too. Because there are real rewards for that kind of, you know, rigid rigid masculinity. There's another way to say it. Um, There's real rewards for that rigid masculinity. And you can't pretend they're not but there's also really bad consequences. So, you know, you can have both those conversations. So before we end, I'm wondering if you have any advice uh, for all of us to counteract some of that, to change those messages for boys. I think that we've done a much better job with girls in a way, uh, because we've had a lot of time over the last, you know, what, 50 years to start thinking about what it means to allow girls to have a fuller life. And it has been more threatening to think of what it would mean to allow boys to have a fuller life because boys are seen as kind of being in a position of power. So we have really good media literacy, for instance, for girls now, because we recognize that the messages of the media are really toxic to girls. But boys are growing up in the same stew. You can argue that it's even hotter, you know, and then you have like pornography on top of it all, which we didn't even talk about, you mm-hmm. know, and how that's shaping their ideas about sex. So it's I think not, that it's not really teaching boys how to treat girls, that's for sure. No, it's really not. Mm-hmm. Um, and girls, by the way, use it as an ex- instruction manual, which is a whole other issue. But we could spend a whole other podcast. We on could that. spend a whole <laughs> podcast on that one, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so so that whole idea of talking about media, there's always something going on that we can talk about. You know, talk, of course, you talk about consent, but not only about consent. What does he- healthy sexuality mean? What does mutuality mean? What does it mean that boys are socialized to sort of see, believe they kind of filter girls behavior through the lens of their desire. So they, they have a tendency to think that, you know, girls want what they want. They, they, you know, why, why do boys sometimes unwittingly cross boundaries of consent? What contributes to that? And, and I think, you know, you can have those conversations, you know, through a book like Boys and Sex, which is perfectly legit for teenagers to read or, you know, a podcast. But I think it also helps with boys a few kind of tips and tricks to have these conversations when you're 
in motion in some way. So like, you know, going for a walk or playing ball or working in the, in the car. So that <laughs> in a car, again, they can't escape. You're not making eye contact. And also to try to depersonalize them sometimes. So things like, you know, rather than saying, hey, let's talk about your porn use, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was reading about sort of contemporary porn and, and the, you know, there were some issues that, that they were talking about. And I wonder, you know, kind of like what you're seeing or... Or to be, you know, really contemporary talk about like only fans pages or yeah you know the the newer things that kids are into to talk about like what happens after someone says yes or what happens yeah. you know when women are looking like they're really into it and they want to do whatever what do you, you know what do you do when you've been right. taught by a feminist mother make sure you get consent make right. sure you don't cross the line make sure you don't hurt her make sure you don't do anything and then you have a girl who's like no I'm totally into it and then they're like I don't I I, I don't know what to do <laughs> Right. I don't I don't want to do anything wrong. You know, we don't allow I you know when I talk about hookup culture with young people, I often say, you know, for girls what I would always say is you you know what you get will probably get out of that is an adrenaline rush, a warm body, you know, a story to tell your friends, probably won't get good sex or the tools you need for good sex or emotional intimacy. And with boys, I mean boys will you know more much more likely get an orgasm out of it, but but hookup culture really denies their capacity for love and and a lot of so many boys would say to me um, that they personally would prefer a relationship, but that all their friends really just wanted to hook up. Like they all said that. Mm. And so there was like, they acted like they were unique among their peers. They were the exception mm-hmm. to this rule, but they all thought they were the exception to this rule, most many of them. Oh, that's so sweet. What an interesting takeaway that, you know, all, all the boys feel like they're the exception to the rule that they really do want more than but just But that, that they're not allowed to express that or or that maybe girls don't want it either. So it's there's a, there's a lot of sort of, messaging and posturing Mm -hmm. and fear of taking a risk or appearing vulnerable that would allow them to create the situations that they want to be in. So I think talking about all of that in some way, over time, in little ways. I think the takeaway for me out of all of this conversation is that, you know, as humans, we all want to be loved and we all want connection. We all want a relationship. We also all want sex and we all want excitement and we all want um, eroticism, but it's interesting how we socialize our children in all of these areas and how our kids are turning out. Are a lot of that is related to how we express our experience of our own relationships, but also a lot of it's out of our control. A lot of it's you know t- mm-hmm. a lot of it's coming through the media, so we have to take a little bit more responsibility to interact with our kids to help them navigate today's world and get through the difficult, rocky parts of growing up. And for those of you who are listening, Peggy Ornstein is an amazing, amazing resource. And if you need more from her, which you should, particularly if you're a therapist and you want more uh, resources or if you're an educator or if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, Peggy, can you tell people how they can find you Sure, you can go right to my website, which is my name, Peggy Ornstein, Peggy, O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, dot com. And uh, there is everything about my books. There's resources for creating your own scripts or your own conversations for your own children and uh, anything you've ever wanted to know about me. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. What a great resource. Thanks, Peggy. I learned so much from you, and I'm never going to say toxic masculinity again. (laughs) <laughs> it's fragile masculinity. I don't know. It's not, or rigid masculinity. Or rigid masculinity. It's yes. fabulous. Thanks so much to my sexy listeners out there, and I will see you next time. 
Have a question about your relationship, your sex life, or sexual wellness? Visit thetroublewithsex.com and click on Ask Dr. Tammy to send me your question. For sex-positive tips, live events, and updates, join my mailing list and follow us at The Trouble With Sex on Instagram. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is designed by Flavor Lab, New York City. This episode was recorded by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by J.C. Chow. Music by Bruce Hirschfield. Music.